0: Welcome back
1: to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brendan Buddha, And I'm Glenn McDorman, And we are back with our second recap for chapter two of Peace, uh, second of seven. And this section covers pages 63 to 77 in the Orb 2012 edition. And since we have started releasing our episodes on this novel, we've actually heard from a fair number of people saying that they had no idea our show existed. I mean, even people in Gene Wolf groups where we post about the show occasionally and we're like 120 episodes into this thing. So uh, (laughs) clearly we're doing a pretty bad job of marketing. And I do want to say that we appreciate all the help that we've been getting in that department from other listeners lately. Uh, We're really, truly... Grateful for that, but we also thought that hey, we should let new listeners know about some of the other shows on the network over these next few episodes. So today, we'll highlight Elder Sign, which is the Weird Fiction podcast that Brandon and I do together, and is really the the flagship of the the network. It's essentially the same format as this show. Twice a month, we take a look at a short story or a novella from yeah, you know, weird fiction writers like Edgar Allan Poe, H.P. Lovecraft, uh, Thomas Ligotti. Actually, a lot of like contemporary new weird writers. And we would really love it if you would subscribe to that show as well. Yeah, we really would love for you to join us on
0: Elder's Side. That's a show we have a lot of fun doing. I mean, we have a lot of fun doing the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast as well, uh, but it's kind of a little bit lighter. And we get to read really broadly, and we read some really cool stories, including, you know, Wolf adjacent stories like Ray Bradbury's The Velt or Jack Vance's Dying Earth series. We've done a couple of Clark Ashton Smith stories. And we know that Wolf was influenced by uh, Vance and Clark Ashton Smith in particular. Uh, but I also want to just say thank you to everybody who's getting the word out about our show, the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast. If you haven't already, take one second and go and review us, please. Like write a review on Apple podcast or wherever you're getting your podcast from. But Apple podcast is, is the reviews that amplify our signal in terms of search engine optimization and things like that. So we'd love for you, if you like what we're doing here to, to review our shows, uh, the shows that you're listening to. It helps us out a lot, but thank you. Anyway, for everything that you're already doing to get the word out about our network. Well, where we left off in peace was with the meeting of one of Aunt Olivia's first suitors. And we're going to go on with that, but not before we have a little bit of
1: an interlude about Cashinsville. This episode we open with a section that is one paragraph long and it's it's we're in the present telling us that he still has not walked around his house as he said he was going to, but has only gotten to the far side of the fallen elm tree. That tree, the falling of which has been the inciting incident for this entire narrative— He comments again here on the weather and how it is becoming spring and rain feels likely. The the damp is hurting his bones. And we move pretty quickly then into the next section. And this begins with a description of Cashinsville and also the surrounding area a little bit. And this takes two pages. I I think also has some really interesting features. So we might spend some time on it. The town is situated on the Connecassee River, which is oriented East west, the western end of the valley is open and full of rich farmland. But the oldest farms in the area are at the eastern end of the valley, where both the the valley and the river uh, are narrow and, and the ground is stonier. And the farms here are also poorer per acre because of this stoniness and because they also are smaller. But they are the older farms because that is the direction that American settlers came from. And this includes Weir's family, who he says are supposed to have originated in Holland as the the Black Dutch descendants of Philip II's Spanish soldiery. Uh, This is when the Low Countries were part of the the wider Habsburg Empire in the 16th century. Weir's family didn't own a farm, but they operated a, a water mill on the upper river here. And this does, I think, something to explain the Weir family wealth, They've been in this town since essentially the beginning, which would have been the early or or mid-19th century. I'm not real clear on that, though. Maybe we'll get some more clues. And in an agricultural community like this, right, the miller tends to accrue wealth in ways that the farmers themselves do not. But what I'm most interested in this part of the description, Brandon, and this is, I know, going to be a strange thing to point out to you and a strange thing to (laughs) ask you about, but it's the direction of the river flow. Based on this description, Which direction is the Kanakasi River flowing? (laughs) You've really hit me in two of my weakest categories here.
0: Those are geography and land navigation. (laughs) I never know where I am in relation to anything else. And if I manage to get a handle on that, I never know which direction I'm facing. So with that huge disclaimer out of the way, I think the river flows east to west because, as I understand it, rivers run more swiftly nearer their head. Uh, and we get told that the river runs more swiftly in 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 the eastern section of the river,
1: right? And then we're also told here that it it opens up later into a, a broader and and sort of more smoothly flowing uh, part of the the river, as if that's the direction that the river is flowing. And we know that that part of the river is to the west, right? That the narrow rushing part is to the east. So yeah, that was my sense as well that the river is flowing from east to west, but. There is no river in America that does this in this part of America. This is this side of the Continental Divide. Every single freaking river. and uh, i uh, I put about two hours into the u uh, s. Geological Survey interactive Map <laughs> online to check this. Every single river in this part of the the world, this part of America is flowing. Towards the Mississippi River, and so it should be flowing east and not flowing west. And I don't think that's an accident, right? Wolf doesn't make this kind of mistake. Wolf, the engineer, the expert world builder, does not do this as a mistake.
0: Well, Cassiansville itself is one of these imaginary places that we've been talking about. That kind of collects, like you know, dust on on a table. This accrual of like Americana and regionalism and all these. Kind of strange literary genres and icons and symbols. And so there's almost a reversal at which Wolf loves, where like the symbol makes the man rather than the other way around. And I think that there's some idea like that at work here underneath everything else that's going on in this memoir so far.
1: And I think of course also right, this has to go into this these 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 visions of America right and America as this kind of imaginary magical place or this other America that is this magical place that exists in our imaginations because I think to me, right, if we're talking about something being on the you know the wrong side, the side it shouldn't be on, then we're talking about a mirror, a mirror image, right and so this here seems to be a very subtle <laughs> hidden i totally obfuscated except to weirdos like me. Uh, uh, image of this as being a reflection and not the actual thing.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's, a, that's an excellent point. And I'm glad you like geography enough to do anything <laughs> like that research that uh, you did. I, I want to take a moment here and return to the standalone paragraph that takes us back to the frame of the novel. You know, up until this point in chapter two, the novel has really acted like a real memoir. There's no weird stuff. You know, it's not thrown in there like we sort of saw constantly in chapter one, and the opening of this chapter almost feels like a redo. It's a fairly generic, though interesting, set of observations about a tough childhood experience. But then we're hit again with this image of the elm tree and the axe. The desire of Weir to climb into the branches of the tree is presented to us somewhat inexplicably. And then we have a reversal, if you want to think about another kind of mirror image sort of thing, a reversal of a Mother Goose poem about the North and South wind. And just a page before this paragraph, uh, the standalone paragraph that reminds us that we're in a frame narrative, there's this reference to Professor Peacock's university as the fabled land of learning, so we're back to we're reminding us of this enchanted world of fairy tales, of nursery rhymes. And this is a lot to take in, but I, I really think it's very important to keep these concepts fixed in our minds as we continue to read the novel. Certainly, it's been hard for us to shut up about pointing these things <laughs> out so far, um, but especially as we get uh, a few fables from Weir as we continue to cover this chapter. And I think, as you pointed out with The River Glenn, this idea of the imagination, the imaginative land, the the place that is from imagination and memory, and and the way those ideas interact, is really at the root of what's happening in this memoir so far.
1: Well, and we're going to get some more of that as we continue the the tour of Cassiansville, because as we we have pointed out, Cassiansville is also the place where the story the the changeling takes place, and we're going to get a reference to that. As we get a little bit deeper into this section here today, but let, let's continue with the tour of Cashensville at this point. And this is mostly going to be from the perspective of Wolf, the engineer. At least that's sort of the the hat I think he's wearing as he's giving us this tour. The town was built at the first ford of the river, though that ford is no longer actually in operation. And instead, there's a bridge, and the banks of the river have been narrowed, in fact, to to make more land for buildings. Something similar also happened with the number of creeks that drain into the river. They've all been paved over and incorporated as storm sewers. This is, you know, real standard stuff. Here in the the early twentieth century, for sure, and the town is oriented by the river, and so the longer and the the more important streets all run east west, and these have pretty banal names such as River, uh, Main, Church, right, pretty standard stuff. But then also at least one street named after a family, uh, though there's no indication that there's a weir street, even though they've been here more or less from the the start. And the north south streets all have tree names, and he gives us a list of examples, but. Curiously, not on this list is elm, which, right, is super important. And (laughs) where this section has actually even kind of started with is, hey, remember, there's this elm tree that's happening here. And finally, this paragraph concludes with a note that uh, definitely piques our interest. So let's just read this sentence, right? West of the town, in broader, quieter water, there is a long, stony island, which used, at about the time I imagined myself visiting Dr. Van Ness, to harbor a hermit called Crazy Pete." Yes. Here Wolf adds a nod
0: again, an explicit nod to his own oeuvre, a reference to an early story that we've covered on this network called The Changeling. So at least at the time, 15 years prior to the age of Weir himself right now, Crazy Pete is still around. And that's Pete Palmer or Peter Palmieri. He went into the cave on the island and never came back out, living as a hermit. Perhaps, as, as Glenn asserted in our coverage of that episode, as a kind of religious convert or a monk of a sort. Maybe we should keep our eyes open for the Palmares or Ernie Katha, see if they show up in this story at all. Though right now, this story is taking place long before the Korean War, which the changeling takes place right after the Korean War ends. So maybe the Palmares haven't moved to town yet. But yeah, so we can say 15 years ago or so, that's the time around when the Korean War ends. So this story, this novel is more or less uh, contemporary with the time it was written, which is the early 1970s. So yeah, that's the time period we're in when Weir is an older man.
1: Right. So just another set of dates or another datable event that we can try to to pin some uh, some specificity on here as we're trying to locate when exactly, you know, the events in the the memoir, especially these early years of weirs, are, are taking place. We'll, we'll get some more details like that throughout the story. And of course, also red circles us back to the idea that there is something, you know, speculative, something fantastical to this story, even if all it maybe really is, is that this is taking place in an alternate kind of uh, America and and uh, this is not the place to rehash, you know, that entire episode that we did. That was, you know, I think episode three that we did. Right, it was like the third story that we covered, and we had um, some real disagreements there that uh, I will be revisiting again and in, in writing soon. And we will pull that story into our discussion of this book at some point. I think we're going to wait a little while to do that so that we don't uh, don't jump the gun there. But that was a story that really had us asking if. Someone had been changed, someone had been replaced as a, as a child, and you know what happened to the school and there's some missing years and so on. And we may be getting things like that here in this story as well. Things where time doesn't seem to be quite right and, and the geography is also maybe not quite right, and so on. And so just a really great nod to that story here. Well, one last bit in the description of Cashinville that uh, I want to point out, and this is really more about the the surrounding area. Weir tells us that north of the town are hills that are too rough for farming. Uh, The timber had been cut 50 years before his childhood, so I think that's the the 1870s. New trees were planted, which were themselves approaching maturity when Weir was a kid. But uh, then, at least, right there were still some untouched pieces of the original climax forest of America. And in Weir's childhood, there were deer and rabbits and foxes and maybe even actually some some wildcats, but long gone were the bears and the wolves and the the mountain lions. And their housekeeper Hannah was the only person that he knew who remembered them. And even for her, they were really only a feature of her childhood. So that is a way, of course, of measuring you know the pace of uh, civilization or you know human dominance of the the natural environment. And some of this language, of course, is calling us back to Weir's apocalyptic imagery of. America. But his picture gets even weirder in the next paragraph where he elaborates on the preservation of this bit of forest that predates European settlers and very clearly right demonstrates that uh, the act of discovery was also not the act of creation is that image that we had of the the, the painting uh, in the the first part that we did on this chapter last episode. The old rocks remain as well, and he thinks of them as the soldiers of the, the country, and he then specifies that to be the Knights Templar. Uh, the rocks were unable to save the forest, but they at least saved some of it, and they did save the land from the plow. And I think, actually, let's just read this description so that we can we can talk about it, because you know, all of these descriptions of this, this weird America, this fantastical or enchanted or uh, apocalyptic America are just so awesome. So here's the passage. Three foot rocks like humble infantrymen, buried and half buried in the poor soil, tall columns of stone like generals and heroes, visible for miles, crowned with hawks. I have seen a lovely pine tree there embracing a stone with her roots as though she were kissing the gallant who was going to war for her, and on her own time scale, she was. Right. In chapter one, I
0: mentioned the Templars in relation to the Masonic practice of putting something special inside of the cornerstone of a building. And here we get a different sense of the Templars as soldiers whose job it is to protect something holy, something sacred, something of value. Then we'll have to see if this sort of ecological theme continues throughout peace. I mean, this is also to say that uh, we have a second iteration of this image of the relationship between Christianity and America, or at least Christian legend and America. But anyway, with regards to ecology, we know that nature and the stewardship of nature are, are near and dear to Wolf's mind. And it occurs to me now, as I think about this, that this pine tree is blessing in, in some sense this night, the, these Templar rocks. And yet the story opens with the destruction of a tree, though it's an elm, not a pine. And I don't think we have enough evidence to make any claims about this yet. But, you know, nature winning against the destruction of humanity is an image, Glenn, that you just referred to. And yet, so far, the frame of this novel is about cutting down a tree that, yeah, it's been struck by lightning and perhaps destroyed by nature and it needs to be taken down. But again, I'm not sure what to do with this with this, again, this textual tension between the competition between mankind's dominance of nature and nature's, I won't say revenge, but nature's ultimate victory over
1: mankind. But we will have to keep an eye on this imagery throughout the novel. Well, and so much of this imagery has been about time, right? That, that nature's destructive power, it can come like lightning, which we do get to open this book, but it also just comes slowly over time, right? With water, Uh, Eroding, uh, you know, stone wearing away, stone wearing away, uh, the ground, and and so on, or plants, vegetation growing slowly, starting to grow on stones, uh, growing on Olivia's roof. Right, we've had a lot of images of that sort of thing, and and that is actually the image that we get here as well, is this tree, uh, kind of you know, growing these roots sort of slowly over time over this rock, simply because this rock is kind of in the way of where the roots need to go to get uh, you know the most out of the out of the soil. Right, this slow march of time. And then contrasting that, of course, with Humanity, and maybe not humanity, but but civilization, which has barely existed in time, right? Barely existed in the time uh, that we have been a species. We're talking at, at a generous understanding of what civilization is and when it began. We're talking about 5% of our existence as a species. We've had civilization, and we barely have any records of almost all of that, right? Writing doesn't even come in until we're halfway through the period that we've been civilized, more <laughs> than like 70% of the way through the period that we've had civilization, right? And so, just the scale of time, right, is something I think that Wolf is evoking here. Uh, you know, again and again, and we're going to get it in so many ways. And you know, constantly looking back to this sort of moment of European discovery of America, I think, is a way of highlighting uh, time, like the, the the long durée of of natural time versus human time, but also to point that out as a kind of demarcation, right, as a moment when the role of nature or the interaction between humans and nature really changes in the Americas uh, with the, you know, the eventual arrival of industrialization from Europe.
0: It's all here. And we saw in the last chapter, in chapter one, the apocalyptic image of America is trees kind of overtaking cities as people flee. And and, and we'll see as we continue our coverage of this chapter, uh, people whose belief is that humanity kind of won't ultimately survive living in this world.
1: Yeah, none of these are the the last invocations of the idea that civilization is going to end that we are going to see. And of course, we know, right, this is an idea that, that Wolf is very concerned about. We've encountered it already in some of his short fiction, uh, Feather Tigers, in fact, actually, right, which we, we evoked last time because of uh, Olivia's um, uh, strange uh, eugenics program with uh, the Pekingese. Olivia, who is very clearly the mad scientist of this novel, though, you know, what will come with that? we will <laughs> We'll have to see. How many ants are mad scientists in Wolf Zufra? <laughs> <laughs> right. So
0: far, we've got
1: two. <laughs> yeah, which is close to 100%, right? The only other ants we get are, are Julie and uh, June in The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories, right? So 50%. Right. And actually, hey, we don't know they weren't mad scientists. It just, just wasn't clear. <laughs> They might have been drug chemists or something like that. <laughs> I mean, they might have been, in <laughs> fact, they might have been. All right. Well, that is the description of the area. And thinking about the rocks, these rocks here in the hills north of town, brings Weir finally back to thinking about Professor Peacock as one of Olivia's suitors. We met him last time. And the the rest of this episode, really the, the next dozen pages of text, are about a picnic that Weir and Olivia and the professor go on. The transition from the description to this episode, though, is the rocks, right? We remembers the professor showing him a rock in Olivia's house while they waited for her to get ready so that they could head out for the picnic. This rock, uh, the rock in this memory in Olivia's house here, is a, is a hand axe, uh, presumably excavated in the area and crafted by pre-Columbian indigenous Americans. And we are going to get some more on the pre-Columbian inhabitants of this area, but we need to get to the picnic first. So Weir tells us that the three of them, plus two of Olivia's Pekingese dogs, took the trolley over the river and as far south as the line goes. So not north into those hills, uh, and then once they got off the trolley, they walked, and their destination is Eagle Rock, even though that is actually quite a hike from this last trolley stop, and it's because there is something that the professor wants to look at there. But we're not going to get that just yet because there's some uh, some flower talk first. I don't know. That's a show <laughs> I would listen to, I guess. And uh, it's a beautiful day. Uh, the wildflowers are in full bloom. And Olivia is having a ton of fun just making up names for these flowers. We get uh, Empress's Tears and Duchess's Hat. Uh, and then also the lavender star of George Sand. This last flower, uh, the George Sand one here, this is actually phlox, but when the professor points this out, Olivia has some fun with the idea of folk names for flowers. And her uh, very sinister plan is for Weir to think that star of George Sand really is the name of the flower, uh, that because he uses the name, it will someday enter the lexicon, and future scholars will have to try to figure out the origin of the name. But of course, it will all really have just been a joke. Right? It's a joke that she is playing on those, you know, unborn scholars. And uh, George Sand, by the way, was the uh, the pen name of the nineteenth century French novelist Amentine Dupin. Uh, she was a big seller, a fairly sensational public figure. And the professor makes a comment here about how when Olivia talks about George Sand, she sounds like that fellow Blaine, and Blaine is one of Olivia's other suitors. That's not really, you know, spoiling anything since we can infer it anyway, but just for you know, clarity, that's who he is. Uh, but what matters here is that Olivia says, Oh no, he's all for General Wallace and that kind of book. And General Wallace here means Lou Wallace, who, uh, among you know many other things, wrote the novel Ben Hur, which was published in uh, in 1880. And there's a lot going on in this talk of you know the flowers and the folk names. I imagine you'll want to comment on that, Brandon. But the first question I really have about this section of the story is what you think Wolf is up to here in using George Sand and Lou Wallace as like contrasting tastes, right? How do these tastes, I guess, serve as character development?
0: Well, I mean, the contrasting tastes are really between, I suppose, Olivia and, and Blaine. Olivia might think of George Sand as a kind of role model. And George Sand or Amantine Dupin is someone I'm not really familiar with at all. But in briefly looking her up, it's clear that she lived in a iconoclastic life in a kind of mild, but Open rebellion to the norms of, of French culture. She bucked gender conventions. She slept with men and women. She had many suitors and admirers among the literati, including, you know, Dostoevsky, who translated some of her work into Russian. She lived freely and was accepted for it, even lauded for it. And in being this way, Sand became a, a new kind of person for the culture. More broadly speaking, to categorize and and recognize. So clearly, you know, some influence on Olivia here. Lou Wallace, on the other hand, and, and I've not read Ben Hur, was a serious man. He was seriously religious, a serious soldier, a serious ambassador, seriously involved in politics in his day, from the time of the Mexican American War, where he overlapped with with no small amount of infamy in the Civil War uh, at the Battle of Shiloh, and until his death, uh, where he was an ambassador, I think, or, or a writer, to doing. Those kinds of works full time, but Blaine Stewart then is someone who we can predict is as someone who enjoys Lou Wallace's books is someone that we can then expect to be cut from a, a more, much more conservative cloth from Olivia, and so it's clear that this tension here that Professor Peacock brings up is really meant to be like you know that Blaine isn't good for you. I'm good for you, <laughs> and so it's kind of like uh I don't know. There's there's some real I don't know, romantic tension between Olivia and Professor Peacock in the section. And it it kind of verges
1: on the on the cruel and the unkind in in many ways. Well, yeah, we're going to see that she has very different relationships with each of these three suitors. So uh, when we get those other suitors, when we get Blaine and the uh, the so far unnamed other suitor, I don't know why we'll be cagey about it, but we will uh, when we get those fellows in more detail in future episodes, I think we're going to have to hearken back to her relationship with uh, professor peacock as 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 well I don't know Lou Wallace very well other than as the author of Ben Hur and then of course you know also his military career he was governor of New Mexico for a while as well but I don't know about the other books that he's written or that he wrote uh, I have read Ben Hur because I super loved that Charlton Heston film <laughs> like when I was a kid <laughs> you know I just loved it and watched it over and over and over again uh, I've actually never seen the the remake though my my students have all said that it's it's pretty awesome but I'm I'm skeptical and have not seen it but You know, Ben Hur, I think, is one of these books that can be enjoyed on a totally superficial level where you're not at all engaging in any of the, you know, stuff that the author is actually putting in there, like any of the actual messaging about, like, hey, this is actually a book about Christ and what it means to be a a Christian and living, you know, by following his example. You can actually ignore all of that and just kind of be there for the chariot racing and some of the army stuff that's happening. And I suspect that that's probably the type of person that that Blaine is going to turn out to be.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm more of a Soylent Green person myself. So, uh, (laughs) you know, better I watched it in school and and just, uh, I don't know, I've moved on, I suppose, in some ways. I do want to comment on all of this flower naming business, really more in the spirit that it's given rather than an attempt to dissect it. We've already talked about this a little bit in chapter one, for instance. You know, I pointed out how Wolf has alerted us to the way different names for the same person or object or whatever are common. It's a common feature of language and of our communal values. And the way names are different are really more important for the connotations that they carry. It's not scientific in the sense of uh, an empirical study. These things gather meaning through their accrued communal significance. And value, you know, like George Sand, for instance, is a nom de plume used to highlight gender nonconformity, or, you know, perhaps also an attempt to get published in France in the middle of the 19th century. But Amantine Dupin didn't change her pen name once everybody knew she was George Sand. And and there's also George Eliot. And and there are many uh, female writers who have used male names either to get published or to become known as a writer and not have kind of the cultural baggage of being a woman attached to them in some ways. But the person is the same. The connotations are what's different, the accrued kind of social meaning and value. But what I get from what's going on here with Olivia is that she's just baiting poor Professor Peacock. She's lightly mocking him. Maybe she's flirting with him a little. She's imagining and mocking the work of future historians and anthropologists, people like Peacock. She's ribbing his work and the idea of even an academic tone a little bit. And she's keeping everything light, perhaps knowing that Peacock, while being game, would rather go out with Olivia alone. I mean, certainly some of the dynamic of their relationship has to do with the presence of Weir, who's putting a strain on this romantic outing. But now Olivia's got Weir, who she can sort of use as an intermediary to create distance between herself and her suitors. He becomes an audience, if you will, for her antics. But Peacock pushes back here and says, you know, that not only is she out there making up names for flowers, which will never catch on. She also makes up names for most of her chinoiserie uh, as well. That is all of her uh, collected Chinese art, the name of her dogs, and some of the work that we'll see that she does later. The last thing I want to point out here is this axe. Once again, Weir has got axes on his mind. And we'll see another example of an axe and tree chopping in just a little bit. So I'll wait to make a comment on that.
1: Yeah. And of course, I think part of why the axes stand out, not that they're not a motif in this story, but just, you know, we don't use axes very much, I think, in our lives. But, you know, in the 1920s, I think, you know, here in Kansas, I think you know, people are using axes uh, more than you and I have ever really used one. I did actually chop down a tree in my yard recently. Didn't use an axe, though. I used a saw. But uh, so I guess not chop. I took down, sawed down. It's actually the verb for using a saw. It's saw. Yeah, I do think that there's a lot of flirting going on here. and, and, And something we should keep in mind as we meet Blaine and then, the mysterious as yet unnamed other suitor is that Wolf made a pretty big deal of letting us know about Olivia's uh, intellectual and academic bona fides, right? And so here's this professor who is dating her and she holds her own, right? And their conversations are banter and and actually a lot of banter and, and flirtatious teasing around like the accuracy and precision of facts. Um and so this is like real nerdy flirting here is my my sense of it. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's exactly what's going on. <laughs> all right. Well as they continue to walk up to Eagle Rock, Olivia teases the professor some more and here it's about why he's brought them out here. And she already knows that he's been out here by himself and he's found something and he wants to show that to her. Which really means that he gets all the fun of the exploring and the discovery and And she's actually just out here as a spectator. And last time they did something like this, it was to see a dinosaur skull that he had found, though his colleague at the university has now identified it. And it's not a dinosaur. It was a giant sloth. Uh, Presumably, this would be megalonyx, but that is not in the text. It's just, you know, (laughs) I like prehistoric animals. Uh, But what matters here is that Weir wonders what this giant sloth was up to, right? Why would an animal come to this rugged place to find food? but it also turns out that he doesn't actually know what a ground sloth is. And he's really envisioning Babe the Big Blue Ox, who's the, the companion of the giant Paul Bunyan. And this turns into a bit of a kind of a weird daydream about being a giant and and chopping down trees with one blow, we're at some more axes there. But also, hey, what we're getting here is some more of America as a kind of fantasy setting. Uh, and indeed, this actually continues when Weir suggests that They could bury the Pekingese dogs here so that a long time from now, someone will find their skulls and be surprised. But... Olivia says that she doesn't think that anyone will be here thousands of years from now. And so we have Olivia also now engaging in some apocalyptic thought. But her explanation is scientific, right? She's thinking of humans as just one species among many and and doomed to the same fate that so many other species have uh, have gone to. Uh, Dominance of the environment, right, leads to overpopulation, which in turn will lead to a catastrophe, an ecological catastrophe, and then... Extinction. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. I mean, I just want to say that
0: uh, megafauna are super cool. I, I you know my deepest regret being alive now is that uh, I, I will never be able to live in a time where they're like megafauna are normal and just kind of <laughs> roaming around and stuff. I mean, that seems like the coolest time to be alive for sure. Uh, but you know, whatever <laughs> we've got, what we've got we've got skyscrapers. I guess uh, I, I want to point out kind of about these images of America. America is a fantasy. Landscape as a place of fable that we've gone from in the last chapter. Though it's only a few pages, I mean, in real time in the book, we've gone from Columbus, America as a Christian nation sort of imagery, to very real concerns about humans destroying their habitat and environment. And this is all like in five pages. I mean, it's taken weeks in uh, our podcast schedule to get this out. You know, people in the future will be able to binge these episodes much faster <laughs> than they're releasing them right now. But Wolf is not messing around here at all. Weir might not be able to connect the dots, but Wolf clearly has something on his mind here. Maybe it's the hypocrisy of finding this pristine undiscovered land and associating that with Christianity. And then we're at the point 40 years later where we're thinking about, are we even gonna make it? You know, we don't get the sense that anyone in this story is religious. And so far we're Deep in another wolf story, like in Fifth Head, where religious imagery is everywhere. But the characters that inhabit this story have no real cosmology. They have only a kind of school level knowledge of where they are and they're left to make their own extrapolations about what the world is and what's going on and what people are
1: and, and 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 things like that. Right, that's a great point. We we have seen in the description of Olivia and her rejection of the the feminine roles that are, you know, advocated for by the community that she lives in, which I think we would all describe as being culturally conservative, yet we don't see this family or really anyone else that we've met so far in this book as being church-going people. It's just not here at all. Right. And, And yeah, we're left with this feeling that
0: the Christianity that is giving America a type of meaning, images, legend, founding, all these sorts of things is really not anything more than mythology. It's not Deeply rooted in the people's practices of their lives, especially in their relationship to nature. So again, just something to keep in mind. I do want to talk about how Weir is actually a really dark soul. <laughs> <laughs> That's evident in this section as well. You know, regarding these dogs and the burying of these dogs that you brought up, it's clear that Weir is bored. He's a third wheel on this date what he says here is that he would have killed the dogs for the fun of a funeral. And this is a really kind of funny sentiment (laughs) when you're a bored daydreaming kid, but it's a little on the dark side too, especially as the statement comes on the heels of young Dennis thinking about being Paul Bunyan with a big ax and chopping down trees. And I can't help but think that the borders between Weir's past as it's being related to us and his present as he's in the frame story are breaking down A little bit. He is just thinking about chopping down trees with axes all the time. And what's really going on here is that Wolf is showing us the way in which our present concerns color our memories of the past. And I think Wolf is just demonstrating that magnificently here in this section in particular.
1: Oh yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. And this, this business with the dogs—I mean, it is grim, right? He says, "Oh no, I, 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 would gladly have have killed them right then and there for the satisfaction of of <laughs> doing this." And uh, yeah, I mean, look—you know—he's a young kid; he's, he's eight or nine, so that's maybe not surprising, right? Empathy is a, a is a slow thing to develop for for us. I mean, really, you know, as a species, not generally until we're in our mid twenties is our sense of empathy, you know, fully developed. In fact, and uh, when maybe your parents don't love you that much and just leave you with your aunt, so they They can go to Europe to avoid awkward parties. Uh, You know, he might not have a lot of models for developing empathy, but we are actually going to see him have a different relationship with uh, with some dogs as this chapter continues. And so it may just be that he doesn't like, you know, the like, what is it like eight or something Pekingese that he's uh, living with at Olivia's and also, you know, speculating going back to the speculation that I had uh, in the the previous episode, wondering why Weir's over at Olivia's house and rather than having Olivia move over to Weir's house for this is the dog right? It's got to be the dogs. They're the reason that he's had to move to her house rather than the other way around. So there might be some justified resentment going on there. Yeah, I think that's a great point. All right. Well, now we come to what is really the main attraction of the picnic, a cave in a cliff. This is pretty high up. It's the, the bluff face of a hill and climbing up to it from the bottom seems just totally impossible. But getting into this cave is precisely what the professor wants to do. And so. He proposes that they walk up to the top of the hill and then use a rope to get down and, and, and then also into this cave. The cave is about 20 feet down from the top of this hill, so it's a fairly serious bit of repelling that he has to do while Olivia and Weir wait at the top. And it's clear that, that Weir, who, right, is only nine at this point, it's clear that Weir is anxious about this. And and maybe Olivia is as well. There's quite a bit of, of black humor about cutting the rope and that sort of thing. This may also just be how, you know, they flirt with each other, but the professor, he makes it, he's actually very excited because it definitely, the cave, the cave definitely has been used by people in the past. And Olivia wants to go down to see the cave too, though the professor puts up a, a mild protest. Uh, but in the end, they, they make a little sling to lower her down. And then also we're and they have their picnic in the cave. The cave is full of charcoal from fires. There are also bones, like human bones, and there are markings on the, the cave wall The professor is pretty excited about all of this, and he tells Weir that this is the oldest house he's ever been in. And he holds up a a blackened turkey bone and suggests that it might actually be older than the pyramids of Egypt. And he also talks about the hypothesis that Native Americans came to America by crossing what is now the the Bering Strait. And we universally accept this hypothesis today. And also, when Wolf was writing piece, this was universally accepted. But this was a fairly new idea when this story takes place— you know, if we're in the early 1920s, anyway, as we've been supposing. And the professor even invokes the scholar who proposed this. And I, I suppose this is why Weird now imagines that Professor Peacock must have been an anthropologist because he knows, you know, not just like some interesting facts about anthropology, but knows the field. And like this is cutting edge stuff here. So you would almost have to be a practitioner to have been aware of it at this point. And so they have their picnic in this cave before they retrace their route home. And on the trolley ride back to Cashinsville, Olivia tells Weir that she left something in the cave. And it was a little dish full of olives, olives, right, to represent her, Olivia, olives for Olivia. And so it seems like she shared Weir's impulse to leave something out there for other people to find, you know, just not like her murdered dogs, but, you know, same similar impulse anyway. (laughs) And it is this conversation, it's this idea where the section ends. And uh, that's all we're going to cover today.
0: Uh, Before we close out the episode, I want to hone in on this dark humor bit for a moment everyone is joking a little bit about killing everyone else or (laughs) at least the adults are joking that dennis will kill the other at their prompting of course the method of death will be a fall from a great height as a result of a rope being cut with none other than dennis's scout knife so here that is again right the scout knife returns in this chapter here It's another ball that we need to keep our eye on in the text. Olivia, though, frames this joke, these series of jokes about murder as a kind of Key moment that will change Dennis's life, a la Dostoevsky's crime and punishment. And she's a little vicious about this as well. She's like, What, Dennis? Are you too scared to kill this man? And <laughs> Peacock can hear all of this. And his response is, Well, if you're going to do it, do it, but make sure to kill Olivia next because you can't have any witnesses to murder. <laughs> This joke is just being taken way too far by these adults here. And Dennis just isn't sure what to make of it. As he recollects these moments, he asks Olivia what she really wanted him to do. He doesn't know. And she says she kind of didn't care either way, but that if he started or attempted to cut the rope, uh, she would have stopped him before anyone got hurt. And I mean, this is just poor moral teaching. I I do love Weir's position as a child, like wondering what the adults really want of him. This is at the center of A kind of ethic where, as children in particular, but I think we're seeing it happen a lot with adults now too, where we mold ourselves around what authorities expect of us. Our moral formation is kind of informed by the expectations that we can infer from who we view as an authority. I'm not actually sure what I'm saying here, but I feel certain (laughs) that this moment, as a moment that is about ethics and expectations, will have reverberations throughout Weir's life, especially as we have the
1: symbol of the scout knife show up here. And the scout knife, right? The scout knife that is wrapped up in the birthday where Bobby Black is injured, gets the injury that leads to his death. And Olivia, 100% knows Why Weir is stayed with her, which is that his parents have left to avoid the awkward social encounters that they're going to face as being the parents of the boy who's responsible in some way for the death of another boy in their social circle. Olivia knows that. It's not clear if Peacock does, though I'm going to assume that he, he knows this, right? That this is something that she would have told him when she's saying, hey, by the way, you know, I'm going to have my nine-year-old nephew staying with me, like kind of indefinitely, but certainly for, for many months. And yet here are these two adults, one of whom at least certainly knows this, making jokes about how he should kill somebody. When he certainly must be dealing with this emotionally, right? Like, like he know, he also knows that he is at least in some way, you know, if not responsible for, right, that he's very involved with the death of this other kid. They have no respect for that. They
0: certainly have no respect for it. And they're joking about somebody dying from a fall again, right? right? And, and that's really what's horrific here is not only are they just joking about Dennis killing somebody, on Olivia goes so far as to say something along the lines, if I can read between the lines here, that, well, maybe you killed somebody unintentionally, but what's really going to show you who you are is killing somebody intentionally. That's the invocation of Dostoevsky here, crime and punishment. That's what's going to reveal yourself to you. That's what's going to take your soul on the journey it needs to go on. The last one was a mistake. Let's make this one count, right? It's really dark. And they seem to just have no problems with it. But the, the kind of structure of the deaths here matches the death of Bobby Black in some way. And that is really kind of horrifying and very sad. And we can infer that Weir is displacing or transferring his guilt about the death of Bobby Black to kind of this taunting from his,
1: the adults in his life about it. And so this is now the second beat on this that that also involves the scout knife and you know there's a rule of three here right so uh, you know we've read the entirety of chapter two before we started doing these episodes so we can say it's not going to happen in chapter two but you know as I'm reading this book and saying oh we've got two beats here we're going to have to get a third beat on this and is is we're actually going to do this to somebody is that the story that we're getting here is that we're actually is going to murder somebody and this ultimately is going to turn out to be kind of a you know a, a memoir. About that, about how his life led to that, I, you know, it's hard to hard to say at this point. But this feels very much like foreshadowing.
0: Yeah. Well, with the number of Dostoevsky references we've gotten so far, uh, I think we can infer that that might actually be the case here, right? <laughs> is is perhaps a person who was, as we've seen so far, is maybe unconverted by his evil deeds. But we don't know yet. And this child certainly is not evil yet, if if Weir is to become an evil person. We just don't know. Uh, There's too much that we don't know, but we know that this kind of dark inclination lives deep in Weir's soul, even at this early age. The, the next thing I want to talk about here before we close out this section is about the, this cave business. As you pointed out, Glenn, Peacock says that the cave is probably the oldest house that Weir has ever been in. It's probably the oldest house he'll ever be in. This is another example of these lost and forgotten places, these places that are now perhaps even unreachable through memory. Yet these places stand in some sense as a witness to those people who who lived there in the past. And, and certainly, this is another reference we get to the First Peoples in North America. As we've seen in the last chapter, they were present in the form of uh, kind of crude cultural imitation by these families hosting a powwow. And now we see an ancient version, an ancient home of these original discoverers of America As we know it. And and, and this is an image that is deeply at odds with the Columbus
1: icon that we came across earlier. Yeah, it's an absolutely fantastic contrast, and we do have this human skull that everybody sees in the cave. Everybody sees it, but nobody says anything about it to anyone else. And and Weir actually has this this interesting vantage where he sees everybody. He you know everybody sees the other two people. He sees Olivia and he sees Professor Peacock both discover this human skull, and then also watches them as they decide not to say anything about it. But everybody knows about it, and no one will say anything about it. No one will discuss it. It's not an okay topic for discussion.
0: Yeah, certainly not
1: over lunch. Uh, (laughs) Perhaps Peacock will write about it later. Right. Well, and here's, here's maybe where they are actually exercising some, uh, some bit of, uh, of, of cognizance that they've got a kid with them. It does seem perhaps they're trying to protect Weir from it. They're like joking about, you know, sending someone plummeting to his death is one thing, but actually showing him a human skull is, uh, is another, perhaps. And uh, I don't know, I'm not entirely sold that this is actually, you know, indigenous Americans or humans at all. And uh, uh, this may actually be a Kryptonian cave.
0: It's entirely possible. And maybe it leads to the Fortress of Solitude. Hey, maybe <laughs> this book is a secret prequel to Smallville. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we should probably cut off our conversation there.
1: So <laughs> that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman, and yeah, it's definitely time to turn my microphone off once the small field jokes start coming out. If, if that even qualifies technically as a as a joke, I think it has to be funny to count as a joke. Well, <laughs> we do hope that you will uh, stop by our forum at claytemplemedia.com or the Clay Temple Media subreddit and uh, talk with us about all of these uh, the apocalyptic images that we get here, and uh, Professor Peacock and Olivia uh, as a kind of rom com. And actually, if you would like to, you know, write some. And fiction you know about their rom-com. I would love to read that. Or if you just want to come talk to us about Smallville, we're up for that as well. And if you aren't already subscribed to the other podcast that we do together, please go subscribe to that. That's Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast. And if you do that right now, you're going to be able to catch up on the, I don't know, 70 or 80 episodes we've already done, and then be just in time for the Robert E. Howard classic, The Black Stone, that we're just about to release. And also some more Roger's Lasney that we've got coming up, who's someone who is certainly wolf-adjacent. Next time, we're going to cover pages 77 to 88 in the Orb 2012 edition. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.